The COVID-19 pandemic has provided a hopefully once-in-a-generation opportunity to fix the structural and systemic problems of housing that have always been here in Australia. It's very easy to think that a housing crisis is an individual person's problem. And I think what's really interesting and important about COVID is that it's drawn into sharp relief the fact that a housing crisis is a community problem and not just an individual problem. Hi there, welcome to City Road Podcast. My name's Sam and I'm here with Ursula. Hello. And we've taken over the podcast this episode to talk about some of the issues of renting during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so Sam and I are both students at the University of Technology Sydney, which is just down the road from Sydney University, and we're both renters at the moment. Um, And so we thought it was appropriate to kick Dallas out of the studio for this episode um, because Dallas is a homeowner and it didn't seem appropriate for him to be talking about this. Yeah, so over the past couple of months, we've been speaking to a variety of different perspectives, whether it be academics, renters, the New South Wales Tenants Union, and we've just been trying to wrap our heads around the issue, because it is something that's very close to our personal lives as well, not only in just a theoretical sense. So the first person we spoke to was Dr Emma Power from Western Sydney University, and Emma spoke to us about the role of secure housing as being the first step in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. Look, secure housing is the first line of community defence against the pandemic and it's a prerequisite for people who need to go into quarantine or who need to self-isolate. So it protects individuals but it also keeps the community as a whole at, at safe. But to be secure, the housing that we have needs to meet a few requirements. So it needs to be affordable but it also needs to give people secure occupancy and so that basically means people need to have the right to stay in that housing as long as they wish to. Our housing needs to be of a reasonable standard. It needs to be appropriate to the needs of the household. And it also needs to be well ventilated uh, and not overcrowded. And so many Australians have got housing that meets these standards, but there's growing numbers of households who don't. And this places the community as a whole at greater risk. And so renters are one group who are at a particularly elevated risk of not having secure housing. And older, low-income renters, and particularly those who live alone, are at a much greater risk again. And I was wanting to ask about those specific sort of rental demographics that you consider to be the most vulnerable. Um, So who are those demographics and why do you consider them to be more at risk in scenarios such as this? Look, single older women are quite invisible within this housing crisis. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about how they are the fastest growing group of homeless people in the country, but they tend to be less visible. Um, We tend to think of homeless people as being older men who are um, sleeping rough on the street. Um, We think about youth homelessness. But this group tend to be hanging on by their teeth to the very insecure housing that they've got. And so, and they often don't know what support services they can access. And there are very few support services that are set up to target this group. And so we find that they will tend to, you know, do the best that they can to hang on to their rental accommodation. Um, And when that starts to fall apart, they'll do things like couch surfing or sleeping in bedrooms of friends. They might cycle between different houses and so on, which of course puts them at greater risk in this period of the pandemic. And so they're much less visible um, and they haven't been much of a focus within much of the policy that we've seen thus far. Mm. And just circling back to a uh, policy again, what's another sort of, I don't know, broad 
policy agenda of our government that's kind of put housing in such a precarious situation that it is now? Look, the focus of this government, um, many governments over time in Australia, has been on secure home ownership. That's um, been seen as a really important social policy that's strongly connected with well-being and retirement. So things like the aged pension calculation, they actually assume that people are homeowners when they retire. Now, if you're a renter, you're in quite a different situation. Um, You won't have paid off your housing while you're working. You'll still be paying housing costs at a market rate while you're retired. And so that eats up huge amounts of the pension, and particularly if you're a single pension owner. Yeah, I was also wondering if you think that COVID has provided a unique visibility to some of these pre-existing issues. And if you're a little bit concerned that once things go back to business as usual, some of this might get covered up again. It's very easy to think that a housing crisis is an individual person's problem. And I think what's really interesting and important about COVID is that it's drawn into sharp relief the fact that a housing crisis is a community problem and not just an individual problem. And so we've seen that playing out um, in Melbourne, but we've also seen it playing out in many other countries around the world where people who live in insecure housing, who live in housing that's overcrowded, those people have been um, at greater risk initially for the, of the pandemic. But then ultimately, um, if it takes hold in, in those sorts of households and communities, the community at a whole is at greater risk. And so what COVID is showing us is how we're all connected and how the inequality of some people is actually an inequality that affects us all. I think it was really interesting talking to Emma about um, the role of secure housing because I'd never even thought of how important that is as the first step to fight against COVID-19 because, of course, we need secure housing and safe housing because without that, how are we going to have people staying at home and fighting the pandemic? Yeah, definitely. And her speaking on the position of older female renters, it really reminded me of a conversation that we had with Catherine Skipper, who is a tenant down at the Waterloo Public Housing Estates. Yeah, so yeah, we're down here in Waterloo between the two high-rise public housing towers with Catherine. I was wondering if you could introduce yourself. Um, My name's Catherine Skipper and I live in Matavai, one of the towers. And I've lived here for 10 years in Waterloo. Before I actually came to public housing in Waterloo, people said to me what a ghastly place Waterloo was and they told me these stories (laughs) about, oh, how you'd be frightened to go out and so forth. And I was, I was frightened too. But when I came here, you know, like almost the very first hour or so I was here, I realised that there was nothing scary about Waterloo and it was a very nice place to live. You know, there's a very strong community and as soon as I moved in, people sort of offered help and then there was this beautiful green that we're looking at now, plenty of dogs running around. But do you think there are some very... I don't know, different public perceptions of a place like this compared to the actual reality of it? Oh, yes. I think most of the public perceptions are probably owing to the Daily Telegraph and their alarmist language, mainly featuring drugs. Mm. 
drugs, drugs, drugs. Yeah. Drugs. Do you feel as though like public housing residents do face quite a bit of stigma from the general public? I mean, have you had any personal experiences with that? Well, I face a double stigma really because not only do I live in public housing, I'm 84. I'm old. <laughs> um, so you know, people have ways of letting you know that you're value is less once you become old. Well, they make assumptions about your health. Can you hear? I mean, people often speak really loudly to me. I mean, I can hear perfectly. <laughs> I can hear perfectly well. I was just wondering as well, how has the pandemic affected your life, especially in regard to public housing? Well, at first, you know, I think every everybody was confused by COVID-19 and its various names um, and didn't quite know what it meant. I mean, I think that it imply right across the board. I don't think the government knew really what it meant or they seem not to. Um, so I think people in general were slow to take action. I, I felt that if I took the right precautions and I wore a mask, I would had a you know a good chance of being protected, and I didn't go on public transport and blah blah blah. Mm. That if I took all these steps, I would be reasonably protected. But you know you have to think. Well, I, you are old, and you are, your immune system is less. You know you're going to die sometime <laughs> soon. Is there a large proportion of elderly people at this estate? Um, well, in the two towers, yes, they're all elderly people. As soon as, well, fairly soon after the pandemic was announced, notices went up, you know, on the front door, on the intervening doors, and people were advised to wear masks, and many people did, many people didn't. And it really wasn't until two weeks ago, I think, people began receiving masks from the City of Sydney in the mail. I mean, do you think that something like the pandemic uh, exposes how important something like public housing is in that regard? Yes, because it creates a crisis, doesn't it? And then that crisis shows up, there's immense holes. Um, one would be nursing homes where the elderly <laughs> reside um, and then also the number of homeless. I mean, there was already a massive number of ho homeless people prior to the pandemic. Do you think if we were to invest in more public housing options, it'd be a lot easier to house some of those people as well in general? Yes, I, I do think that. And I think if we were to invest in public housing, well, it would be one way of offering employment too, wouldn't it? After speaking with Catherine, we decided to catch up with Dr Alastair Sasson, who's an expert in public housing. Currently, I'm a research associate at the City Futures Research Centre at UNSW. My work there is quite varied, and partly I'm working on these issues of rental affordability and the quality of rental housing. I understand a lot of your research has been focused on public housing and the stigma against people in these facilities. Do you feel that COVID has also uniquely affected people who are living in these spaces? I think there are a couple of ways in which the pandemic has had impacts, disproportionate impacts on public housing tenants. We saw this obviously in Melbourne with the lockdown of towers in Kensington and North Melbourne. That was completely unlike the response to outbreaks in 
other areas of Melbourne where there was high density housing. So tenants were given no notice, uh, so no forewarning that they were going to be locked down and they, their lockdown uh, was far more strict than what it was in other areas. So that response is clearly one that is exceptional to public housing. And I think that probably stems from some ideas about public housing tenants as being either incapable of responding to more lenient government restrictions, or in fact, maybe some people think that they don't deserve to be treated the same way as as people in private housing might have been. Mm. Just speaking on that first uh, issue there, where do you think that sort of characterization of those living in public housing, where does that come from? Yeah, there are a few dimensions to that. There's a belief that public housing tenants are uniquely subsidised, that public housing is a uniquely subsidised housing tenure. That really ignores the fact that there are subsidies for home ownership especially, but that's not really talked about. Public housing tenants are seen as uniquely subsidised. And when they are seen to be undeserving that subsidy, so for example, when they're portrayed as as lazy or as feckless because they maybe are out of work, or if they are suffering from drug addictions, then they're they're often portrayed by politicians and the media as not deserving the subsidies that they get from, from governments. The other issue, which is perhaps a little bit beneath the surface, is the issue of housing quality. Public housing is not always, but quite often uh, quite poorly maintained. And with people spending more time in their homes, those issues of maintenance and in, in fact, also the cost of housing. So if you have old electricity and, and water systems, that becomes more expensive and the experience of living in your home is less pleasant and really, for some people, really uh, quite dangerous. This extreme precarity of social housing relates back to a neoliberal housing process known as residualization. Pre-COVID, we sat down with Dr. Andrew Clark to give us a bit of background about what this process looks like. So my research is on the governance of social housing, looking particularly at um, the management of, um, I guess, problem social housing tenants or problem tenancies. And so the work that I've been doing most recently has been trying to examine that process, that governmental process in the context of broader changes to housing policy, social housing policy, and what we've called a sort of style of bureaucratic encounter that housing authorities engage in uh, in order to um, manage tenants. The broader context is important because neoliberal housing policy has led to what's what's referred to as the residualization of social housing in Australia. So this is a combination of declining investment uh, relative to population in social housing, which has led to a dwindling of stock, accompanied with an increasing targeting of that stock towards those individuals who have the highest needs. So in order to get into social housing in Australia now, you don't just have to be struggling to Uh, afford housing in the private rental sector or private market, you also need to be able to demonstrate that you have other associated sort of complex needs that contribute to your inability to sustain housing. And they're things like mental illness, substance abuse, substance addictions, experience of incarceration, experience of domestic violence, all of these kind of things that make people's lives complicated, I guess, and make it difficult for people to sustain housing outside of the um, social housing sector. 
as a consequence of this residualization process, now we have a concentration of some of the sort of most vulnerable and disadvantaged people in society concentrated within a sort of a quite small social housing sector. And they're concentrated in terms of tenure, but they're also concentrated spatially because that housing is often spatially concentrated, right? So there's, you know, uh, big apartment blocks and that kind of stuff. And so what this means is that social housing providers are faced with a, a kind of disproportionate or a, a quite a, a large volume of, of tenancy issues, right? So you have people with complex needs all thrown in together. And I guess this leads to the kinds of tenancy problems that I was talking about earlier. So we have lots of disputes between neighbours. We have a lot of issues with rent arrears, property damage, all of this kind of stuff, right? That's kind of a product of putting all the uh, people with complex needs together in one one place. And so the kind of response to that and what we've sort of conceptualized as the kind of neoliberal response to that is to sort of focus on the individual and say, well, this is because these individuals are irresponsible and they're not, you know, behaving themselves properly. They're taking advantage of the welfare system. They're taking advantage of social housing. Therefore, in order to address these issues, we need to um, make their housing conditional on improvements in their behaviour. And so in Queensland, this manifests itself um, under the Newman government um, as a, what was called the anti-social behaviour management policy. And this entailed a three strikes and you're out approach, which basically entailed that if you had three breaches against your tenancy or uh, a first and final, they called it, which was a particularly bad one, which was things like the housing provider discovered a meth lab in your house, you would be evicted, right? And and so this was kind of premised on the idea that these people were just rational subjects, the same as anybody else, and they were making bad decisions or they were irresponsible and they refused to get their li- their lives on track. And it sort of ignored the very conditions that the, the state itself placed on people in order to get into social housing, which is that you had to demonstrate this array of complex needs, right? And this has implications for those people in that it exacerbates their their, their kind of vulnerabilities by, you know, clustering people with complex mental illnesses, drug and alcohol addictions together. Um, you can imagine that's not a recipe for a harmonious community necessarily. And it also has led to the stigmatisation of the sector. So wonderful publications like the Courier Mail or the Daily Telegraph do exposés on, you know, um, the badly behaved social housing tenants. And so there's a broader public perception that social housing is messed up and why do we even do it and these people don't even deserve it and this can feeds back into the delegitimization of social housing as a tenure option so alistair back to you so i was just wondering what key issues in the rental market have you noticed since covid19 mm-hmm. well the obvious issue is that it's highlighted the severe precarity of our private rental system We knew already that a lot of people were living in immense housing stress, people paying more than 30% of their income, sometimes more than 50% of their incomes in rent. And of course, when those people lose work, that situation becomes completely untenable. And so they have to start negotiating with their landlords if their landlords are willing to to give them uh, either a deferral of their rent or a reduction in their rent. Or in many cases, they have to terminate their lease and perhaps move in with their parents. Or in some unfortunate cases, um, people have been made homeless. When we were down at Matavai, we ran into someone called Henry, who was quite the character. And uh, Henry was previously homeless, and he spoke to us about his experience being homeless and the benefits of having a home in Matavai and the safety and security that came with that, particularly during the pandemic. So, Sorry, could you introduce yourself? My name is Henry. I live in the Matavai, and I'm quite happy where I am. But it's so good here because we're so central at everything. You've got the bus if you want to go to Marrickville Metro, just there. You're 10 minutes from 
from uh, the train station. You got Woolies five minutes away. Wham, bang, thank you, ma'am. How good do you want it? <laughs> Apart that COVID has sort of got to everybody, not only me, being isolated, locked up, you know, when I'm used to getting out and meeting people and getting out. But we just got to pray to God that it's coming to an end. With COVID, what was the regulation? Were you not allowed out at all? No. Well, at one time we had been isolated for two weeks. You know, there's a lot of old people here and they get very sick and they don't come out much, you know, because we're all old. Get, look at me grey hairs, I cover them up. Can I ask what your age is, sorry? Well, I'm 76. In another month, I'll be 77, not out. <laughs> Pray to God. <laughs> and were you worried being in that age range? I mean, obviously people no. were affected by okay. COVID a lot. No, no, it didn't worry me. I knew what the rules and regulations was. And were you told why you had to all isolate for two weeks? Yes, because of the virus. That COVID, and we didn't want... Because once you get in a building like that, as you know, it has spread right through the building. And as I said, there's a lot of old people there. Um, can I ask how long you've lived here as well, sorry? Over four years. Were uh, you in any other public housing before that? No, I was homeless. I was sleeping at Central like a lot was. I got bashed a couple of times. And housing used to come there from half past six in the morning and they'd seen the condition I was in. So they put me into a place at Surrey Hill, into a motel until such time as I got this. They got me a fridge, they got me a bed. They got me everything I wanted. They said, hey, you didn't get nobody to tuck me in. <laughs> but, you know, things like that, that was excellent. You know what I mean? I think um, one of the things that was really interesting about talking to Henry and Catherine down at Matavai was how tight the community is and how much they look out for each other. And I don't know about you, but I've lived in two apartments now in Sydney and I don't know any of my neighbours' names and I never have and I never would feel comfortable asking them for a teaspoon of sugar or anything like that. But down at Matavai, they all knew each other and they they all really cared for each other. Yeah, for sure. And it definitely went against a lot of the media narratives that we hear about public housing, especially like Catherine mentioned in outlets like the Daily Telegraph and whatnot. They can often misconstrue public housing and public housing tenants as drug addicts and just welfare slobs, when in reality, they're like a very vibrant community that are often still working or have um, conditions which don't allow them to work as well. So a lot of these people are just, uh, yeah, as you said, living in a really positive, tight-knit community. And uh, you don't often get that recognition that they probably deserve as well. But also a lot of them do work. As Catherine said, she works, but she just doesn't get paid for it. And she does a lot of volunteer-based work as well. But I think that, um, yeah, they're a community that we can look up to as, as to how we can do housing better and how we can look after our neighbours better and look after our community better. Yeah, that, that was another element where I, I asked both um, Catherine and Henry about whether they were scared about it spreading through the building and both of them said that they weren't too scared because they trusted their neighbours to follow all of the regulations, to wear a mask, to stay distance, and they just trusted their neighbours to do that. They weren't too worried about people going against the rules because they knew them and they knew how important this was for their building. After speaking to Catherine and Henry, we decided that we need to look a little bit more into policy, particularly policy around renting in COVID. Uh, and so we spoke to Dr. Chris Martin from UNSW, who has a background in both law and housing and public housing and tenancy law in particular. 
And it was really interesting speaking to, to Chris because he spoke about how archaic our thinking is around renting and that when the pandemic first hit, the response was, well, how will people pay their rent as opposed to should people continue paying their rent? Yeah, definitely. And he spoke quite a lot about how it's not only the policy changes since COVID-19 that's been important to note, but also the pre-existing housing and rental policies that have underpinned our system for a long time. People have to pay their rent. Well, there is another sort of response. Maybe they don't have to pay quite so much rent. <laughs> but we, we, we haven't really forced that line. There's been some voluntary individual level uh, negotiation around it that has been facilitated by state governments. And I think lots of other commentators too have balked at saying the rent must be reduced. Why? I think part of it is the, the flow of money through households. And it was interesting, early in the crisis, the real estate, you can go back and, and you can see this in some of the, the statements of the real estate institutes. They were expressly talking about the flow of money. They were really worried about the flow of, there's this flow of money from households to landlord households. And, and of course, there's a, a little diversion in the flow of money that goes to real estate agents as well. So that's why they were freaking out. And they were, they were talking quite, quite expressly about, we need to keep this flow of money happening because everything turns on it. This flow of money, rent money from households to landlords. And I guess the concern is that it also flows out of landlord households to banks in particular. $45 billion goes from private rental households every year to landlord households in rent, 45 billion. And there's, uh, I think it's about 3 billion goes to, to real estate agents to do their thing. And then 20 billion goes to banks in interest payments because about 80% of Australian landlords have uh, debt finance, their investment. And 60% of Australian landlords uh, are negatively geared. That is that their, their interest outgoing is actually more than what's coming in. That flow of money and the institutions that are, are receiving all of this, this, this the, the flow of rental money from, from households includes some powerful institutions, whether they're landlord households who are on average much higher income, who do have political power of their own. There's a, a, a lobby of property interests around them, in particular real estate agents who have their own interests, but presume to speak on behalf of landlords who, who have the era government. And there's the next step in that flow of funds, which is to the banks, uh, who have been having a very quiet crisis, has to be said, while, while, the, while the property sector was telling people to hit up their super and, and pretty much doing this nude streak across the public consciousness in, in those, those early days of the moratorium, uh, the banks have been very quiet. But, but I, think, I think to answer your question, that's, that's why it's a, it's a lot of money and, and it eventually flows to some powerful institutions. As it is now, it looks like the tenants are kind of bearing the brunt of the crisis. Um, who do you think should be bearing the brunt of the economic crisis? Uh, well, the, there is a real cost to the crisis and it needs to be shared equitably. And my concern is that tenants are bearing too much of it or more precisely, our system was set up, the way our system was operating meant that tenants were going to bear it because rents weren't going to go down without some intervention. And there hasn't been enough intervention in allowing that cost to be shared further down that income stream to, to landlords and then to banks. So I do think tenants have had to absorb more of the cost than they should have had to. And I think that there may be 
a combination of ways of ultimately equitably sharing the cost. And that involves cutting off that, at least some part of that income stream out of households. And then there will be an issue about taxing away some of the gains that some households may have made in this. Some of those income streamers accumulated in savings in some households, then there should be a a way of adjusting, sharing the cost by, by taxing that out as well. So on the topic of policy, we headed down to the Tenants' Union of New South Wales building in central Sydney to chat to Leo, the CEO, as well as Jemima, the policy and advocacy coordinator, about some of the key issues they'd identified with tenants. Hello. So I'm Sam, by the way. Nice to meet you. I'm Jemima. Nice to meet you too. Welcome to the Tenants' Union. So I'm Leo Patterson-Ross, I'm the CEO of the Tenants' Union of New South Wales. As, as CEO of the Tenants' Union of New South Wales, I'm responsible for uh, ensuring that the, the TU um, fulfils its mission um, to improve the lives of tenants in New South Wales. The key issues that have arisen for tenants during uh, COVID-19 has been uh, the difficulty in uh, feeling confident that they can comply with uh, various safety and health orders um, like staying at home and, and having a, a safe, secure home to, to remain in, um, and the uh, financial impact of the sort of economic side of, uh, of COVID-19. Um, people have lost work. They have um, uh, not been able to maintain the rents that they were paying before, which may already have been high and unaffordable. Uh, and uh, we know many people have fallen further and further into debt. Um, by March, obviously the pandemic had spread further and further and it was impacting more and more people. Um, and so we started recognising the risk of um, widespread evictions. And um, so we were advocating for an eviction moratorium that essentially stopped all evictions because whether or not you have breached your contract um, by failing to pay rent or um, in some other way, if you're evicted from your home, you become much more vulnerable and much more unable to follow the health directives. So we really were saying that uh, all evictions should be paused um, and that the potential for debts should be um, addressed in policy early on. What we got was mostly a framework that tried to encourage a negotiation around uh, rents, particularly in New South Wales. For two months, it stopped Summary: some evictions that were uh, rent arrears if you were defined as COVID impacted, uh, and that definition was 25% of um, household income had reduced. Um, the, so for two months, those households couldn't be re- evicted for rent arrears. Uh, that was until mid-June. Since then, um, it has just been encouraging landlords to negotiate by saying, you can't move to evict for rent arrears unless you can convince the tribunal both that you've engaged in a good faith negotiation and that in the circumstances, considering the financial um, position of the part of, of the landlord and tenant uh, and the health um, sort of directives at the time, uh, it's appropriate to evict the household. The other thing though we, we really saw was there is no obligation on the landlord to negotiate. It's, it's only if you want to evict, you have to show that you've negotiated. And so that meant that a lot of people um, where the landlord decided they weren't going to move to eviction, um, had no real path to have their rent reduced. In a nutshell, how effective do you think that whole rent reduction process has been as well? I mean, obviously we've seen reports from like 
the Guardian and whatnot mm. that have like talked about how very few tenants are actually getting like a what mm. they consider a satisfactory response from their landlords. And how do you think that it's ultimately been mm. gone about? Yeah, um, in New South Wales, it, it really seems like it hasn't been very effective at all. We know that the vast majority of agreements were made informally and outside the sort of the, the government set process. Um, and so often they were set for very short time frames or they were unclear about how long it was going to last or un unclear on the details of the agreement. So um, some people might have thought that it was a rent waiver where they weren't going to have to pay it back, but the landlord says, actually, no, you, know, you, you are going to have to pay me back. And so they, didn't, they hadn't defined the terms. Or, um, or that, yeah, they, they'd said it only for a month or two, and obviously the crisis has lasted for a lot longer, and so they're kind of either constantly having to try and renegotiate, or, um, or the relief only lasted for a little period, and they may, you know, be kind of um, struggling as a result. Mm. I'm Jemima Mowbray. I'm the Policy and Advocacy Coordinator at the Tenants Union New South Wales. When we spoke briefly the other day, you were talking about some of the more vulnerable groups that have um, arisen with COVID and renting during COVID-19. Um, one of the ones you mentioned were people living in share houses. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit and explain why people in share houses have been um, experiencing more challenges than others? I'm going to clarify a little bit. I think that if you're a renter, you have been challenged during this time. If you've been impacted financially, you've been challenged. And, you know, across the board, there's just a whole lot of different vulnerabilities. Share housing has had some really particular kinds of issues come up. You know, what we saw in share houses was that there might only be one or two people in the household who actually lost income, but it would have an, a, an impact across, you know, everyone in terms of the rent that they all had to pay. Because if, if a couple of people can't put in the rent, how do you make up that, that difference? But they didn't get any of the protections that the evictions moratorium brought in in New South Wales because the definition there said, you know, 25% of your income... Um, as, a, as a renting household has to have been lost. So you could have a situation where two people lost 100% of their, their income. They then made a really probably smart and sensible decision and the only decision that they could make, which was we're going to move out and we're going to go stay with family or... Um, but then the two people who are left in the house couldn't fill the room. It was a really, it's been a really hard time in share housing to fill a vacant room. Um, they might not have had any loss of income but they didn't get any protection because they're not able to show that they've had a drop in income um, but they can't cover that rent they were already paying way too much money out um, before COVID and post COVID it's just become even even trickier and so a lot of tenants felt like they didn't have much choice and that the most sensible decision was that they had had to leave straight away and we saw that we saw tenants who actually were in fixed terms and who were facing penalties especially at the time there have been some changes which which for some tenants they get a little bit of a get out if they're not uh, if their landlord isn't coming to the table to negotiate they can leave without such a significant penalty but early on especially you saw a lot of tenants leaving with quite significant penalties so four or six weeks of rent um, because they um, they were breaking their lease early they'd have to pay this break fee but they waited up and went you know what I just don't know that I'm going to be able to negotiate a rent reduction 
that will actually be low enough that I can stay and afford to stay in this home. So if they had any kind of alternative accommodation, if they could go stay with friends or family um, or find something potentially that was you know, not as high quality or further out, then they might move um, straight away. And we saw that that happened quite a lot because people just didn't have confidence in the negotiating um, framework or the idea that the landlord was actually going to reduce rents um, enough. Um, and then, you know, um, my colleague Leo has talked quite a bit about um, the fact that what you, um, the other problems in the mix of that rent reduction framework were that you were seeing um, a whole lot of deferrals put on the table. Often that was actually kind of, you know, you could see that the landlord was maybe trying to or probably trying to do the right thing. They would say or the real estate agent would say to their tenant, you know, just you know, pay what you can and we'll work it out. Um, they, they wanted to do the right thing. They didn't want to see their tenants out, out in the middle of, especially early on when we're all really anxious about this. They didn't want to force their tenants out into the community, evict them right in the middle of a pandemic. So they would say, just pay what you can and we'll work it all out later. And from their perspective, they were they were saying to their, their they were doing exactly what the New South Wales government and other governments had said to do, you know, just try and do the right thing by your tenant. We we need everybody to work together. But from the tenant's point of view, what they what they heard and what they knew was going on there was essentially a deferral, but with no negotiation around it. You know, no ability to say, well. Is that, a, is that going to be a, a waiver? So is it actually going to be a real reduction? Or are you just telling me to put it off um, and I'll have to pay you back later? I don't know if I'll have a job later. I don't know if my financial situation is going to turn around. So how can I agree to that? And so people had to leave. We then decided to speak to some fellow renters who approached their landlords about getting a rent reduction. The first person was Sammy, who lives in Inner West Sydney with his two sisters. Um, well, I live with my two older sisters and... Uh, one of them lost their job from COVID, um, so she couldn't work. So there was less income coming in, and there was a there was a period of uncertainty where, before JobKeeper came in, my shifts went way down. But JobKeeper hadn't kicked in yet, so I didn't know how much money I was going to be getting. So, and then we just heard that everyone was getting rent reductions, so we just jumped in on the action. And how did that process go? Can you walk me through how you negotiated that rent reduction? Yeah, so I remember at the beginning, um, the our real estate agents weren't keen to do it at all. They weren't going to do it. They were just like, nah. But then we were like, oh, come on, everyone's doing it. Um, and then I think we just sent a couple emails, uh, did a bit of red tape. There was there was some you know paperwork we had to fill out, um, like proving how much our income had been reduced. I'm pretty sure is what we had to do. And then after that, I think they reduced it by like like 50 bucks or something. So how much was your rent originally and then what was it after the rent reduction? Um, originally it was 900 a week uh, for the three of us, so 300 each, but then it went down to 850. That's not a very big reduction. Yeah, nah, it's not. <laughs> um, but that was the thing. They were pretty hard. They were a bit hard-assed about it, so we were happy to just get that because, you know, that builds up over time. Unfortunately, some renters haven't been so lucky, and I spoke to one renter, Ella, who had quite a big issue when trying to negotiate with their landlords. So our rental experience during COVID was actually fairly non-existent up until a, a certain point. And then 
essentially for just a little bit of background information, when we moved into our house, we actually got it for a tiny little bit less than what they had advertised it for. I think it was maybe about $70 or something less. So essentially uh, the owner of our house had always wanted to raise the rent on us. Um, and then they, they talked about that in February and we said that we were happy for them to raise the rent because as far as we were concerned, we'd been getting a, a cheap house in inverted commas. Um, and then COVID hit. So we sent an email to the real estate saying we're fine with the rent increase, but is there any way that we can put that off until the lock lockdown is over? But unfortunately, that's not what happened. So we inevitably... Oh, look, inevitably spent a good month or two emailing back and forth about this rent increase that they wanted to put on us. We then turned around to them and stated that we weren't asking for a decrease in our rent. We weren't asking to not pay our rent at all. We hadn't asked for any COVID-related favours. So for them to turn around and say that they wanted a rent increase was, if I'm going to describe it as anything, it was incredibly insulting. Uh, especially when we did the, what we felt like was the right thing. We didn't ask them for anything. We didn't bother them, etc., etc. So they've told us that they want to raise our rent, like I said, in the middle of a pandemic. And we've tried to work with them, um, like I said, asking them to put it off. They declined. They offered a certain amount and then we turned around and offered them half of that. So essentially we have copped a rent increase in the middle of a COVID pandemic. But there was a little bit of how come we're not shown, I guess, the same respect that everyone else has shown. Um, but that is the rental market for you in Sydney in a nutshell. It's incredibly difficult, um, even when it's being, I guess, regulated as it was over COVID. Um, it still doesn't mean that no, it's fair for everybody, unfortunately. So, yeah, we were very disappointed. We then spoke to Katie, who has actually had a pretty positive experience negotiating her rent with her landlord. I had two jobs before COVID. I was working in a pub down the road from me and I was also sport coaching at Skeggs Darlinghurst. One of my housemates was doing the exact same thing at me. She was coaching at a different school and she was working at the same pub as me and my other housemate was a nanny. And what happened once COVID hit? So Skeggs shut down because they had, I think they had a close contact case or something. So my coaching job ended quite suddenly. Um, and the pub was like staying open until they couldn't possibly stay open any longer. So I essentially lost my job. And then Skeggs said that the sporting season was cancelled and they wouldn't be starting up till term four. So there was a period where I wasn't going to have a job for four or five months. All three of us ended up unemployed and without any form of job keeper because none of us had been in our jobs for every year because we'd all just moved into a new um, area. And so we all decided to go home um, to be with our families and to quarantine with them. And then what happened with your rent? How did you approach that? So um, we'd been home for about a month and a half and we knew that there wasn't really an end in sight. And so we knew that we were going to be home for quite a lot longer. And we like we, we paid quite a lot of rent and it, for, to live in the area that we live in. And we were quite stressed about paying it when we weren't even there. We have a really lovely property agent who um, he manages the property. The owner lives overseas. So he does kind of all the management for it. So we were just like, there's no harm in sending him an email and just seeing what could happen. So we sent him an email saying, is there any possibility our rent could be deducted. We've all lost our jobs. We've all moved home, etc. Just like put it out there. And he got back to us and he was like, yep, that's so fine. How does 50% deduction sound? Wow. 
Yeah, so we were like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And so we've been paying 50% rent since March of this year. And what is going to happen, so you've got a job again now. Um, Do your other housemates have their jobs back? Yes. So um, my other housemate got her coaching job back and my other housemate picked up some more nannying work as well. Um, And so, yeah, we're all employed again, which is nice. But it also is like we haven't had income for four months, so we're kind of rebuilding our savings at the moment as well. So it's nice that we're still paying that 50% rent so we're not dealing with having to go back to an insane amount of rent without any savings. And um, what's going to happen now? Have they spoken to you about increasing the rent back up to 100%? So it's quite a funny story, actually, and it goes back to a plumbing problem we had. So we had a major plumbing problem in our laundry, and we didn't say anything about it because we were like, oh, if we say something, he'll come over and then he'll see that we're back and he'll put the rent back up. Even though we know full well that this is a really nice guy. And so we put it off, put it off, put it off. And then the floor started swelling downstairs from this leak. And we're like, "Mm, maybe it's time we call him and get him to call a plumber. Anyway, long story short, plumber comes over and was like, you idiots, why did you leave this leak going on for so long? And we're like, oh, we just didn't notice it. And when our property agent came over to look at it, he was like, oh, and just so you know, rent will probably stay down for the remainder of the year. And so we assume it will go back to its normal rent in the following year, which we intend to stay for another year in this place. I think it's just really nice how during COVID you've been able to really put to the test people's humanity and see how understanding some people are. I know we are in a very incredibly lucky situation to be in the situation we're in, but it was, we were just so thankful to have such a lovely property agent who just saw our situation and saw how tough it was and just instantly was just kind over anything else. I think that's just been a really lovely thing about COVID in amongst all the horror is that you've been able to see people's kinder sides. I think it was really interesting over the last 12 weeks speaking to all of these academics and fellow tenants and the tenants union as well and and looking at so many of these issues that I haven't really given much thought to previously even though I probably should have. Yeah, I think you and I were both very unfamiliar with a lot of these issues despite being private renters ourselves. And I think it's been really important familiarising ourselves with the landscape. Yeah, and I think it was particularly interesting looking at, especially at policy, um, speaking to Chris, especially at the start of the pandemic, that our focus was on how do we keep people paying their rent and how do we keep that flow of money going from tenants through to landlords and eventually through to banks as opposed to just how do we keep people in their homes. Yeah, for sure. And I think public housing and the importance of communities such as the estates in Waterloo really stuck out to me as well, because it's so important to protect people in those low income brackets from not only crises such as COVID, but also from issues such as homelessness, which just keep on rising in our cities. Yeah, and I think secure housing, what we realise perhaps is that secure housing is the first line of defence for COVID-19 and we are so dependent on secure housing. Yeah, and COVID-19 has been a time when we've all had to come together to protect our communities. And I think it is that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to come together and address the pre-existing issues that underpin our rental market. So that when we do have another crisis such as this, our first priority is keeping Australians in their homes and making sure they feel safe and secure in what have been already incredibly fearful times.